episode 8 of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that this podcast was put together on the land of the Boonurong people of the Kulin Nation and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging leaders. In this episode, we explore the sexual exploitation of girls and women and speak to two frontline workers who are supporting the young girls to increase their personal safety to combat the regular risks they face in the community. In early 2020, there was some media attention in response to crime statistics agency data pertaining to victims of crime. This data identified that girls aged 10 to 14 were most likely to be the victims of repeated crimes. Between 2018 and 2019, nearly 1,900 girls aged 10 to 14 were recorded as victims in police reports mostly of sexual offences and assault-related crimes. The true number is likely to be much higher. The impact that sexual exploitation has on the girls may not be visible immediately. And whilst the data identified those aged 10 to 14 as being the highest prevalence of victimisation, it's important to recognise that this data only pertains to what is reported. In reality, the ongoing sexual exploitation and victimisation of girls continues beyond this age bracket. However, many of the girls and women simply stop reporting it. With the challenges of evidencing the reports, barriers in accessing support to address the psychological toll of this exploitation, and the scrutiny the girls and women are exposed to around their own behaviours, the system is far from one of safety and supports. Significant concerns in relation to the sexual exploitation of young girls in out-of-home care have been at the centre of policy making for DHHS and Victoria Police. Investment has been made to train specialists to respond across multiple agencies and whilst these passionate and dedicated individuals make some headway in targeting perpetrators who can be identified, the core issue remains regarding the vulnerability of our young girls and the means and methods that predators use to engage in their sexual exploitation. For many girls vulnerable to sexual exploitation, their childhoods have already been littered with adverse events. Progressively, these events create the pathway to presentations of complex trauma. And as we heard in our last podcast, once further progressed, our system has very little capacity to respond to girls and women with multiple and complex needs. You don't need to be an academic to see the potential pathway for a girl that's been sexually exploited at a young age, at a pivotal time of the development of their identity, self-esteem and how they view themselves in the world. Our guests on our podcast today are two exceptionally passionate frontline workers who are making the most of their time in connecting with these young girls to increase their personal safety and sense of identity The concept of personal safety is one that I've only been recently introduced to by one of our guests, Kim Porter. Having worked with exceptionally vulnerable young girls and also young men who are preyed upon for exploitation, I've often felt overwhelmed by a lack of capacity to protect them from the never-ending flow of predators in every corner of our community. Whilst Victoria Police's specialised units do an amazing job at locating the perpetrators, there always seems to be another one around the corner. The concept of developing personal safety in our children seems common sense. However, common sense is something that neither our education or service system is based on. 
for children and young people who do not have the stability at home or who disengage from education in early age, the responsibility to help them build their personal safety falls on professionals and role models within our community setting. Great. So on this episode, we're joined by two passionate and dedicated professionals who are on the front line of supporting girls and young women who've been impacted by sexual exploitation. Kim Porter is the team leader of the Young Women's Project in Dandenong and Rachel Ashes is a youth and family worker with White Lion. Thanks so much for joining us and it's great to chat about this very important yet often misrepresented issue impacting our girls and women. So I'll throw to you first, Kim. Can you just explain to our listeners what the term sexual exploitation actually means? Yeah, sure can. So I've actually pulled up the definition from um, the World Health Organization. There are lots of different explanations, um, but that one, this one's probably the most succinct. So it's the actual or attempted abuse of a position of vulnerability, power or trust for sexual purposes, including but not limited to profiting monetarily, socially or politically from the sexual exploitation of another. So that's probably the most simple one. There's lots of explanations out there. Um, obviously, when we're explaining to young women, we, we use lighter words. You know, no young person would identify as being sexually exploited, but we're all vulnerable to it. How would you explain it to your, to your girls then? Just, um, I guess, and that's where a lot of the misrepresentation comes from, is around this, ex, you know, the explanation. So how would you explain it? I think it's more around, you know, we tend to find that the first probably six months of building relationships with young people, it's all around just explaining to them that we are a support service that supports young women um, in all areas of their life. So whether it's relationships with their friends, family, boyfriends, girlfriends, um, significant others, and all of the, the trials and tests and everything they go through when they're experiencing those relationships. We talk a lot about the strength of having other strong women around each other in that vulnerable space to make sure that we have spaces to trust and, and share and, and communicate issues. And then I think just as, as, it, as the conversations go on with young people, you can start to explore those power imbalances. A lot of young women that we, we support have experienced family violence or domestic violence in their histories or currently. Um, so it's a really good opportunity to kind of open up the conversations from there um, and start to talk about those things. You know, being really honest with them about, you know, we noticed you're coming home with cash. Where are you getting it from? And there's always concerns of what's the return for that? If someone's giving you cash, they're not just giving it to you for nothing. You know, what do you have to offer for that to be given to you? I mean, it opens up a whole host of conversations from there. It's so great. And I know that um, St Kilda Gatehouse has been somewhat iconic, I guess, in, in the St Kilda area in supporting young girls and women. What prompted the development of the Young Women's Project? or program in Dandenong? Yeah, it's a good question. So over 26 years ago now, in St Kilda, there was a team of, um, a small team of crew that worked in, that, you know, they really noticed that there was a huge um, amount of street-based sex working happening in St Kilda and no real support for the women in the area. So um, they started working in that space and just through learning from the women's experiences in St Kilda, you know, the conversation started started saying, you know, when I was 12, this happened to me, or when I was 13, this happened to me, and this is where I ended up due to the limited choices I had in my childhood. 
And just through that anecdotal research, I guess, and then, you know, starting to look at what are the trajectories that lead to women in this position of street-based sex working. And just through that research, they found that sexual exploitation has a huge impact on a child's future and, and where that leads them. And then finding out that Dandenong is, is a huge area of growth. It's a big multicultural hub of personalities and humans and it's a beautiful area. And just noticed that there were lots of reports coming from that area around, you know, kids going missing and, and cars being stolen and young people turning up with wads of cash for no explained, you know, reason. And that's kind of where we landed and just started this space that was for women run by women, you know, encouraging those safe spaces. I love that when, when a project is a, and a program develops based on that community need and the need there to actually respond to what's happening. So it's so good. And you mentioned that there's research around a lot of stuff to do with the sexual exploitation that starts in childhood and in young adolescence. And Rachel, I know White Lion's a huge advocate for those more marginalised young people. So, you know, we've worked together and I know that you've personally supported young women who've been subject to sexual exploitation. Have you got any thoughts that you would want to share on other factors that appear to coincide with sexual exploitation? I know Tim mentioned family violence as well and I know White Lion works a lot with homelessness. So any thoughts on some of the other factors that might go along with it? Yeah, for sure. So I think any young person can be a victim of sexual exploitation, but obviously there are other factors that can increase the likelihood of being exposed to it. Those who I feel are at greater risk of sexual exploitation are those experiencing homelessness, which is an area that us as White Lion as an organisation, we do work quite intensely in. Uh, so those young females, young, even young males, but for the topic of this conversation, I will stick to young females, those who are experiencing homelessness or instability in their living environment, which is why, as we know, young people who are in out-of-home care are at a pretty high risk of it. Substance dependency and mental health concerns, especially for young people who have dual diagnosis and complex trauma, uh, often when these coincide with sexual exploitation, young people who have intellectual disabilities or other function, functional impairments, they, they don't really see themselves as being exposed to um, sexual exploitation. And as Kim mentioned, even just using them terms, young people will not, not really comprehend that that's what they are being exposed to. Also, I think from my experience, those who have got intergenerational trauma are also a high risk of being exposed to sexual exploitation. Uh, those young people who have a family history of sexual exploitation as well, where you will see within their, their family members, within their mothers, within their aunties who have all been exposed to the sexual exploitation. So I think there's, there's a couple of factors that can coincide and can be uh, huge factors that contribute to females, young females being exposed. But yeah, definitely one of the main factors would be those who are experiencing homelessness. It's when you have that instability in your house and it often leaves you with feelings of rejection and being unwanted, which will leave young people to be in a bit more open uh, to seeking that exception somewhere else and seeking somebody who can offer love and affection and stability, which again will often lead these young females to being at risk of sexual exploitation because there are people who will take full advantage of that. 
And that's interesting in terms of that um, homelessness and, and the sexual exploitation. I do recall hearing, I can't remember where I heard it from, around people offering homes and shelters to young girls, a place of a bed, a couch in return for favours. And I think that is so far from public's perceptions that this actually occurs. I don't know whether, Kim, any of your young girls have reported that, but I, I do remember clearly hearing that that was something that was happening. Yeah, it's, it was definitely, I mean, it, it probably came out, there was a news article maybe three years ago uh, that came out in, in all of the papers about young people that were couch surfing, especially as they reached that age of like 17, 18, perhaps they've been in out of home care, uh, perhaps they've been in a kinship placement, feeling really socially isolated, Rachel mentioned about the um, disability, mental health. It, it is definitely that dual diagnosis, young people being vulnerable to that and the cost of living in Melbourne or in the rest of Australia and how that has influenced young people's vulnerabilities to searching out couch surfing and staying on people's you know, sofas and spare beds. And we, we have had young people that have been manipulated into exchanging sexual favours for shelter. You know, everyone has those core needs that they need to address. And until we address those core needs, it's really hard for us to do any more work than, than the, the, the basics with them. But we do find that once those core needs are addressed, you know, you can start to address that, those social isolation issues and the vulnerabilities that lead to sexual exploitation. You've mentioned a number of times around connection. There's a lot of language that both Rachel and Kim use in, in that importance of connection to provide somewhat of a safety net. Jana, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a theme that's been coming up throughout our podcasts, really, hasn't it? The mm -hmm. importance of connection and having positive you know, people around you that you can go to. So you don't seek out those risky behaviours as much. I guess that's something that it would be good to sort of get Kim and Rachel's perspective on how we can go about as workers working with these young women in a way as to sort of improve those connections, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think connection is something that comes up often within the sector as well, just working with young people, trying to find connection and and a means as well and I, I think if a lot of young people don't have them strong connections within their family if, if they have been ex experiencing family breakdown or they're at risk of family violence then they don't have them immediate connections they don't have them strengths within their relationships with their family members and most often you will see a trend of young people who will gravitate towards other young people who are in similar situations because they can relate and they build these connections and these relationships with peers, with friends, with other young vulnerable females, which to young people is, is them building connections and, and finding them strengths and being part of a community. Whereas when you're looking at it from a worker perspective, that is then just more young people coming together to be further exposed to more sexual exploitation. So I think it's it's really important to try and create connections outside of their immediate peer group and their immediate family members, um, whether that is trying to trying to get young people engaged in some recreational activities to meet other young people of a similar age but with different experiences or trying to get young people to engage back into education, employment, where they can have workers that they can look up to, they can have teachers that they can 
um, that they can look up to these teachers as positive female role models. Um, they, they can meet other young people within an education setting where they can create these, these further relationships and these connections outside of their norm. It seems like having those pro-social connections helps have people that will check in on some on the safety as well and it's not necessarily having the oversight and somebody that's you know a pro-social person checking in on them like I said but just somebody saying oh what's what's the motive exactly what you guys do Kim at the um, young women's projects yeah we talk a lot about being curious with the young people I think as workers sometimes we fear being vulnerable, you know, I guess we talked about, we talk about this a little, a lot about, you know, when you're studying to become a youth worker, you know, you talk about don't be vulnerable with the young people, you know, be strong, which is great. That's, that's an amazing skill to have, but it's actually really important to be vulnerable with young people and ask them questions and be curious because that's how we build relationships in our own personal lives. And Modelling pro-social behaviour is the best way to, I guess, engage young people and and create that safe space for them. Um, I think at the moment, especially with COVID happening and being isolated, lots of young people are finding that they're feeling unsafe no matter where they are. So at the moment, we're doing a lot of teaching young people about being safe within themselves and how do you find that safe space to kind of be grounded and work on self while in this isolating time so yeah that's it's, it's a huge thing being curious and being vulnerable enough to ask questions with young people young people are smart you know they they know they read us better than yeah. no matter how how much we've studied they will be able to read workers and other people yeah. um, and especially with kids who are in out-of-home care that that have been in the system for a long time they they know the language they know the deal you know so i think sometimes it shocks them when you ask them a question about who they are what they want um not what we think is best for them our aim is to to encourage these young people to grow up into strong women however they identify to be strong in who they are and and make better decisions for their lives and we can't do that if we're constantly telling them what to do and not encouraging encouraging them to find their own strength. Mm, I think that we, well, I know personally I've learnt more off the young people I've worked with and their families than I could ever learn in any textbook. So I think that it's that curiosity and connection with the young people themselves is what is most important and you mentioned before some of the basic needs like meeting the basic needs like housing and if they don't have that then you can't sort of move to the next level and I am a huge advocate for Maslow's hierarchy of needs and I think we forget that we forget those basic things so if somebody is seeking out the stability and safety they're going to seek it out to people that actually take advantage of them if they don't have that somewhere they can access. One of the things we've had a chat about previously is around Victoria Police and, you know, Child Protection. They do a great job at looking at the perpetrators, the ones that are, I guess, the ones that are looking to exploit young people. But, Kim, you've mentioned internal safety and I must say, I, I was not familiar with that term before you mentioned it, and I love it. Can you explain how you explain that to me? 
Yeah, so I, I guess it, it came out of, it actually was from another staff member that we work with that's amazing with the therapeutic work that she does in the space. She's our group work coordinator. Um, and she was really finding that young people were just feeling unsafe in general. So one thing that she's been reading up on is around if we can't find safe spaces in the community and in our own homes, if we can't settle ourselves, how do we, how do we move on from that, that basic core basic need? So exploring how to, how to find our own safety within ourselves, whether that's through mindfulness, whether it's through um, our breathing, however it looks, it's kind of being able to calm ourselves to a point where we can actually say, all right, I feel safe in who I am. I, I know my boundaries. I can now start exploring more of what's going on in my world. That's a very, very basic kind of explanation of it. But yeah, I, I really like what you're saying there, Kim. And I think if um, you sort of expand it to other examples of internal safety as being things like from having the knowledge of how good exercise can make you feel, how your brain works when you use drugs, that natural release of endorphins when you're doing activities, um, eating right, that kind of stuff, learning all those skills to sort of increase that internal safety, I think is really important as, um, yeah, to teach young people for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, having young people having anxiety and panic attacks at the moment and, you know, when workers aren't around, you know, we're not going to be around forever. And I think sometimes we forget that they're still just kids that just need us to be there and kind of sit in it with them and help them navigate it themselves so that when we aren't there, they can do it. They can do it for themselves. It's really powerful to see young people using those skills is, is amazing. And I think that positive sense of self, in fact, then can mitigate some of the risks associated with the associations with older, older people, not just males that may use young women for sexual exploitation. Rachel, I know working with some of your young women, you've done, you know, you've focused a lot on that connection. Can you speak about any pivotal points that you've seen where I guess you know with that support and what you've done and the connection that you've built they do start to look a little bit internally? Yeah so I, I suppose looking at how the connection can creating this connection can change a young person's whole perspective of things as well and as we've discussed earlier on during this podcast is young people will often seek you know stability or substances or food or shelter from unsafe environments and from unsafe people um so once you can kind of create them connections with other people with other supports with other young people um, even just linking into other services or the other service supports young people their immediate go-to is not always to these unsafe environments their immediate go-to will be can we can i contact a worker about this can i seek support from elsewhere is there another place that i can reside today so i think once you can create these connections elsewhere young people will change their process of thinking and I know that just from experience when young people have been able to secure housing they have really just reflected like young people are so resilient and they can adjust to anything but they can really reflect on wow I have this stability this accommodation is mine this house is mine or this you know refuge is mine and this is my safe haven how can I 
keep this as my safe haven, as my oasis, that they can really reflect on how this one, I'm going to say small factor, it's not a small factor, it's huge, but how this one factor can have such a positive impact on their life. Young people who then have their own accommodation or can create positive connections and relationships with um, with, with people outside of their immediate go-to bubble, they're just, they're exposed to so much more. They, they are exposed in a positive way. They're exposed to shelter, connection, community, to, to love and affection from people who are genuine. Um, and slowly but surely they can then gravitate away from their, their go-to networks where they are at risk of being sexually exploited. Yeah, they, they can gravitate more towards these positive peers and these these love and care and people that they can bring into their lives Mm. and then instead of living day to day they can actually plan ahead like you know see a future and come up with goals and plan if they've got that stable base like there's so much more opportunity definitely and I've even just had a young person say to me I can see a silver line and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and to us you know as as workers as people we can move house we can pack up and, and leave and we can go and live in another apartment house whatever and it, it's a great it's, it's a great feeling but to young people to be able to move into somewhere or temporarily stay somewhere that is theirs it's so uh, it, it's so overwhelmingly beautiful to see how they can just blossom and how there can just be such a decrease in their mental health from having this stable environment, from having this, this home. Um, you, you just see how they can function in their day-to-day life and their, their living skills will improve and they will take care and pride of this house and their money then will be, not always anyway, will not always go towards substance use and because they know that they need to get some food in. They, they really want this, um, <laughs> they, they really want hang and wall art. So they will try to manage their money a little bit better. And it's just, it, it can, yeah, sorry, I'm getting a little bit carried away, but it can just change their lives around so much. Just looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, just creating that stability and that shelter. And yeah, it's quite beautiful to see. You can see how passionate you are. And that's, um, I think, one of the most amazing things working in this sector is when you meet people who have that passion to just see the improvement with the young people. So you can hear that and see that from you, Rachel, tenfold. I guess one of the other things that we see a lot with our young women and even our older women, Jenna, you probably agree, is association with older male offenders as well. Again, it's, and it is tied into sexual exploitation, but it's exploitation in everything. So you know, they're often co-offenders, uh, named as co-offenders with older males that have a lot more involvement in the justice system. So do you see, Kim, a lot of interaction with the young girls that come through your program with the justice system as well? I'm just wondering if there's any sort of interaction there and what your thoughts are. Yeah, we do. There's this kind of CS, like sexual exploitation cycle where, you know, we see a lot of young people who are, have been vulnerable to CSE and then as they experience more and more and becoming kind of almost in their own self being stronger, the exploited becomes the exploiter 
you know, to save myself, I will exploit someone else. And it is purely a vulnerability. It's purely a survival. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, we talk, people talk about survival sex when it comes to, you know, housing instability and all of that as well. And, you know, the media talks about it, but we definitely notice it. Um, and that's part of why we are here. You know, we have Socket who do an amazing job and child protection who do, it's a tough job for them to do, you know, and they're working with the perpetrators. They're trying to kind of stop, stop these um, exploitation experiences in their tracks. And then we get to do the beautiful work behind the scenes and, and with the young people engaging them with community. Um, but definitely a lot of connections in the justice system. Um, you know, I think in, in research around young people and negative experiences is around those um, adverse childhood experiences as well. You know, you have one adverse childhood experience and it, it increases your vulnerabilities for sexual exploitation as you as they get older. So, you know, we were talking about this a little while ago about how, you know, everyone's vulnerable to sexual exploitation, but it's the strengths around them and the, I guess the community around people is what actually stops them from actually being exploited. And I think that it's because it's such scary words, sexual exploitation. I don't think we realise that it's it's so much more common, especially with social media and and you know people pretending to be other people on social media. That really makes all of us vulnerable if we're not educated enough and and strengthened enough to make positive decisions. Oh, you've so touched on something there, Kim. In that, I I guess I, I'm a mother of three girls, and so it is a very scary thought. The, the term sexual exploitation is scary. But what you and Rachel have really enlightened me with is strip it back, strip it right back. And it is about connection, safety, and building those protective factors externally and internally that will then, I guess, reduce the likelihood of the young people being victims of sexual exploitation. So it definitely has enlightened me in that moving forward how can we actually build that community and getting other workers across different sectors getting teachers to understand that that connection and building that community is actually one of the strongest protective factors against sexual exploitation another one of the questions that i've always had in relation to sexual exploitation is around the internet and well, it's, I think it's a, a lot more complex than we can actually think in, in the sexual exploitation that does occur. Do you do anything in particular around education, around the internet and use of social media? Or what, what do we need? What do we need to teach all of the kids, not just those most vulnerable? We need to be more social media savvy than young people and that's never <laughs> going to happen. Good luck. <laughs> These young people know how to navigate the online world way better than we do. We're playing catch up all the time. When there's an app being used, as soon as that app's, we find out about it, they're onto the next one. So yes, there are things that we can do, you know, putting those parental um, controls on when they're younger. But I think it's really important to educate young people. And like I said before, being curious, asking them what they're experiencing online, even doing contracts with young people about, you know, if, if you were to sign up to Instagram, these are the rules. I get your phone at night and I'm allowed to check through your friends. I won't read your messages, but if there are things that are going on, you need to be brave enough to come and talk to me and know that we can have that discussion. 
but you know we can't just take the internet off young people because it, it's not teaching them anything it's just punishing them before they've even made a choice which is tough it's really tough because you know that would be the easiest thing turn off the internet would be fine but it just um it just doesn't work and so in our experiences at the moment we're doing a trial program with the eric which is the emotional regulation the impulse control and your relationships and talking about you know social media is one of those discussions around what is it that you get out of the relationships that you have on social media you know what is your body telling you? you you talk about like gut experiences like what is your gut telling you when you're in a bad situation do you listen to your gut and what do you do if you're in in a situation where a photo is being shared do you know what to do do you know that there are websites that you can go on to report those images do you know that socket is around and sakaza are there to support you if if there's been a sexual assault i think it's just making sure that we educate all around that and just creating spaces of safety where young people can say hey i've experienced this can someone help me i'm out of my depth that's so very important and do you know something else that i've come across that i think is as equally as important is there needs to be some form of secondary consultation for you know workers that are working with young people that may be vulnerable to sexual exploitation that they can touch base with someone and say what do I do in this situation because as workers you can't know it all so is there anything like that that exists that anyone knows about yeah so we offer secondary consult at the young women's project we we often sit in on care team meetings and consult with a care team around what what they have going on and what they're experiencing and noticing Perry Castleton and the and the child protection sexual exploitation practice leaders are great if you're working within this space to consult with and and they will give some really good advice on what you can do and then there's online spaces as well there are i think i think a lot of people don't realize that they have the skills already to work with young people who are vulnerable to sexual exploitation you know all of these things of belonging and connection and um, safe spaces we can all create those but I think it's just realizing that you have those skills in your in your toolkit if that makes sense um, so and we have a sexual exploitation two-day training which is really great because it helps you know it helps staff be able to identify what is sexual exploitation and what are the steps forward from there um, so we run those as well but you know we want everyone to be as educated as we are if not more to, to work in this space because because everyone's vulnerable to it, you know, boys and girls, however you identify, everyone is vulnerable to it. So how can we all as workers build connection and, and safety for these young people? Mm, yeah, and not just workers, like just everyone in the community, you know, friends, family, teachers, everyone can do their bit within community. Like, I think that's something that really needs to be looked at more as a whole in society. How can we protect our young people? How can we protect everyone? But how can we protect our young people in the community from sexual exploitation? And I think Kim kind of touched on it as well before around just asking them questions. I, I think within the sector, a lot of programs or people who work in specific areas will try not to really touch on that topic because it's such a heavy topic and it's quite intimidating for young people and for a worker, especially to be asking them questions like straight up. Um, so I think that as workers, as 
community sectors we need to be asking them really uncomfortable questions to young people we really need to be creating them spaces of non-judgment and letting them know that these conversations are okay to have and you haven't done anything wrong you're not in trouble like we are here to help you and to support you and as Kim mentioned as well before, just asking them questions on where they got their money from. How did they afford their new iPhone? You know, we know that you don't have any income. So let's chat about where you got this iPhone from. And if it was from another person, what was returned for that iPhone? Like, what did you have to return for that iPhone? And having them discussions and not in a way to normalize it, but in a way to create a safe space for young people to feel open and comfortable to discuss with workers so that we can then educate them on on the on the risks and on their safety i love that and that's so i think a really good point to end on is around that importance of connection conversation curiosity you know there's some the the big three c's there and it does more than what i think workers realize is creating that safe space so um has anyone got any parting words of advice or becoming a little bit more knowledgeable around this area builds confidence in people to ask those questions that's definitely one thing that i've learned and got that insight kim i think it's just not being afraid to be curious you know if this was my niece that was experiencing this stuff i would be asking her what's going on and I would be expressing my concern. So I think sometimes we need to take that worker hat off and put that human hat on and just ask those questions. I'm noticing this, I'm worried. And for some people that's scary. Some people don't wanna hear that you're worried, but I think it's important for them, for young people to know that we do care on more than just a staff level. We care on a human level for these young people. And that's why we're in this, in this work. But I think we're all we're all doing as much as we can and we can only get better by doing these kind of things, you know, talking about it and asking questions and being vulnerable enough to say, I don't know enough about this. Rachel? Yeah, I think probably just leveraging off what Kim said is taking your worker hat off and, and being a human about these things and these questions and expressing your concerns. And sometimes we don't always have the answers. We, we can't always give the best advice, but being a human and being there with an ear open to listen to these young people and just to help navigate young people. So I definitely just think being a human in this situation and creating spaces of non-judgment and even the language that we use for young people, you know, coming from a quite a basic language level um, and approaching them as young people, not as we're a worker, we're above you, we're going to speak at you about this. Like, let's sit down on the floor together and be at the same level and have a very equal conversation about this. Thank you both for your time and Jana as well. Great insights. And I think a really important topic, like you said, Kim, to get out there, to spread the word and to have those authentic conversations with all young people as a human being. I love that. Not as a worker, but as a human being. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. me. That brings us to the end of our eighth episode of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. Thanks for listening and thank you to our special guests, Kim Porter, Team Leader of the Young Women's Project, Dandenong, Gatehouse and Rachel Ashes, Youth and Family Worker, White Lion Frankston. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email Lisa Abbott, Project Coordinator at labbott at phcn.com. 
labbottt.vic.gov.au. That's L-A-B-B-O-T-T at phcn.vic.gov.au. If you or someone you know has concerns around sexual exploitation or for more information on this topic, please contact Southeastern Centre Against Sexual Assault on 9594 or the Sexual Offences and Child Abuse Investigations Team or Socket, as it's also known as at Victoria Police. Please note these are Victorian-based services. Um, Sakaza is the southeastern service because we are based in Frankston, but you should be able to Google any other appropriate services local to your area if required. Thank you for listening.